0: Hi, this is Professor of Photography, Jeff Curto, and welcome to History of Photography. This fifth class session deals with photography as a form of transport, taking a look at 19th century photographs that traveled the world, bringing distant parts of the world back to people uh, who had never seen them before. We also take a look at some more modern forms of photography being used as transport and see how technology changes the way we can see the world. Here we are joining our class in progress. Today we're going to talk about photography as a form of transportation. And we're going to briefly look back at daguerreotype photography. We'll also take a quick overview of the wet plate collodion process. We're going to look at some world travel photographs. And ultimately, we will concentrate on Western American photographs. Uh, And then at the very end, we'll talk a little bit about photography and the road and the fact that photographers have often found the road or travel to be a sort of thing that inspires them to make photographs or think about photographs in in a different way. So when we look back to daguerreotypes, which we spent a lot of time talking about last week, We can remember that one of the things that's interesting about daguerreotypes is how amazing it was to the people of the world who saw these images. This was something unlike anything anybody had ever seen before, and therefore it became an absolute craze. People were just really crazy about these things. They were nuts about the idea that daguerreotype photography existed at all, that these pictures were so incredibly sharp and beautiful, and it was as the second bullet point suggests here, not only a worldwide phenomenon, but it also seemed as though it was a phenomenon that Americans liked best. And uh, uh, part of it, I think, has to do with some of those ideas that we talked about last time that that, uh, photography was sort of helping us define ourselves in some way. Another thing that we can remember about daguerreotypes is that it was almost exclusively a portraiture medium. There were pictures of landscape for daguerreotype photographs, other objects and places and stuff, but 95 or so percent of all daguerreotypes ever made were pictures of people. They were almost all pictures of people. And part of that, as you saw last week when I had some daguerreotypes here, was because of the way in which you viewed a daguerreotype. It was kind of a secretive kind of an experience where you saw just that picture and you couldn't really easily share it with a crowd. Their limited size was part of it, but also the fact that they were one of a kind. They were singular images that could not easily be reproduced. The only way to actually reproduce a daguerreotype was to make another daguerreotype. Or you could copy the daguerreotype, take a photograph of the daguerreotype with a daguerreotype camera, you know, daguerreotype process, but you're going to lose some process, you're going to lose some quality in the meantime. There's going to be some generational loss. So it wasn't really the same, and people tried it, and it was sort of like, well, yeah, but. You know, it's just, let's just make another daguerreotype. But of course, with a person's picture, their expression's gonna change, something's gonna change. So um, that inability to reproduce the pictures was something that was significant, and it was something that was problematic for a lot of people. And it was certainly one of the shortcomings of photography in its early days. So we talked before, and we'll talk some more today, about wet plate collodion. This process that came about in 1851, Uh, an English uh, inventor, photographer guy named Frederick Scott Archer. And what he figured out was that if he took uh, a couple of chemicals and put them together, uh, gun cotton, which was an explosive, if he dissolved this gun cotton, which if you think of gun cotton, you can kind of imagine what that might be. It's almost a cotton candy-like substance. You dissolved it in alcohol and ether. And what you got was this gooey stuff a gooey material that was liquid, but kind of liquid like molasses liquid. Liquid, pourable, but sticky and kind of, you know, unctuous liquid, right? So uh, you could pour that over a glass plate, allow it to set for a while and get a little sticky. And once it got sticky, you could use paint over the plate or immerse the plate in silver nitrate, and the silver particles would stick into the particles, into the, into the sticky goo, this collodion, and what you'd get was a light-sensitive plate. A light-sensitive plate. This collodion was actually a pretty interesting invention. A lot of people used it for a lot of different things. We'll see some of those things a little later on in the semester, but one of the big deals for collodion was bandages. Bandages. You could take this stuff, paint it over a wound, and after it set for a while, it was flexible, but tough enough that it would resist being punctured and it would cover up the wound well enough to keep oxygen and germs away from it. Was that kind of like a superglue? Kind of like a superglue. Kind of like a superglue. So the dilemma was that while the positive side was that you could make a negative on a glass plate and therefore you could have a high-quality negative, unlike the paper negatives, which were pretty good but not transparent enough, with the collodion negative. The problem was is that this whole name wet plate suggested that it had to be prepared and exposed and developed before it dried out completely. So you had to prepare it just before exposure, expose it, and then develop it before it dried. If you didn't, if you got it, if it dried out before you developed it, it was ruined, and you couldn't use that negative. So uh, that was a, a real drawback, which meant that you had to have photographers using things like this, a darkroom tent where they'd set up their camera, a dark box to coat the plate, and then a tent to have all of their equipment and materials inside. So, you know, when you think, I'm going to the Morton Arboretum for the afternoon, I wonder if I should bring my tripod. Tripod, that's pretty heavy, awkward. I don't really want to have to bring my (laughs) tripod. You know, these guys are bringing an entire dark room along with a camera and a tripod and all the other glass plates that they needed to have. We've already talked about how it was very sensitive to blue light. The result was the, the skies in pictures were, were blank, usually. Uh, you know, it's sort of interesting because teaching this class a number of years ago, I could say that this material was just like codolith. And all the students in the photography department would say, oh, just like codolith. You mean you can handle it under red safe light? Because many years ago, oftentimes, we would use this material, some of you may have used it at some point, called Codalith, no longer made by Kodak. And it was a lithographic film that produced an image, and you can handle it under safe light. So uh, this material was what we would have called, when we were teaching this stuff in the Wayback Machine, orthochromatic, sensitive to only one part of the spectrum of light, and insensitive to other spectrums, parts of the spectrum of light. Now, if you use black and white film, you are using film that is pan chromatic, sensitive to all the colors of light, <coughs> pan chromatic, so sensitive to all colors of light. So, all of our films now in our black and white world, when we use black and white film, we're using pan chromatic film. But these materials were orthochromatic. So. This process gave rise to travel photography. One of the things that happened was, <coughs> excuse me. This will really be one of one of many times i will interrupt to cough while suffering with this thing. So uh, as wet plate collodion expanded, now it was possible for photography to travel. Now, photography could have traveled before, but because the daguerreotype was small, because it was not easily reproducible, it really didn't do much for travel photography. I mean, you couldn't take a picture of some place and easily distribute it. But wet plate collodion made it possible to make a negative that could easily be distributed. So wet plate collodion was a process done in the field. You had to have the darkroom, you had to have all the apparatus, you had to be in the field to do it. Once you got back to wherever it was that you were based, home or your lab or whatever, you would then print these wet plate collodion negatives, which had been processed by you in the field, on albumin printing paper. Albumin, another word for egg white. Egg white, albumin. So eggs were cracked, yolks were discarded, custard was made, you know, <laughs> right? And uh, the egg white itself was used to coat over the, coat, the surface of the paper The egg white was allowed to dry, so what you had was a piece of paper with egg on it. You know, egg white on it. I've done it. That's exactly what it is. You know, you take the eggs, crack them, you get rid of the yolk, you make custard, then you, you know, go back and you make the albumin paper. So, and then you take and paint over the surface of that or immerse the paper in silver nitrate. The egg white would hold the emulsion, the silver nitrate material, to the paper, It was really just a binder. That was all it was. Like the collodion. The collodion was necessary to attach the light-sensitive stuff to the glass. This was attaching the light-sensitive stuff to the paper. So egg white attaches the light-sensitive material to the paper. This material was really insensitive to light, very slow. We would call that in photography slow. And it's interesting. Joan asked me a bunch of questions over the last couple of days about some of these things. And some of the terms that we use, when we talk about slow, we can talk about it in a wide variety of ways. Photography at this time was slow. Slow in that the photographer needed to take all of this gear to the scene, get all the gear arranged, figure out where to put the camera, coat the plate, get the plate ready to go, make the exposure, develop the plate, and then move the camera to another location, etc., cetera, et cetera, That might be one way that it's slow. Photography was also slow in terms of its shutter speed. Shutters weren't really employed in cameras. In the 19th century, up until maybe the 18, late 1880s or 1890s, because all you really needed was remove the lens cap, look at your watch for a few seconds, put the lens cap back on. You didn't need a shutter to mechanically time the material. So we would talk about this Albuin printing paper as being slow, as in it had a low ISO. It was low in sensitivity, low in sensitivity, and because of that it meant that you needed to make a contact print from the negative. A contact print, anybody who's been in the dark room made a contact print. The size of the negative is the same as the size of the, of the print that you get. So if you make a contact print from a 35 millimeter negative, you get a print that's the same size as the 35 millimeter negative. But in these guys' can, uh, situations, they were making pictures on 8 by 10 and larger inch cameras and they were making pictures that were much larger. So they were needing to make a contact print. If they wanted an 11 by 14 photograph, they had to make an 11 by 14 glass plate negative first, then coat a piece of paper that was 11 by 14 inches with this albumin material, coat that with silver nitrate, and make a contact print. So the only reason they needed to do the contact print was because it was so slow? Exactly. There was no, and, you know, if you think about it, we're, we're talking about the 1850s, 1860s. Archer invents this process of wet plate collodion, so now we're able to do this. But is there electric light? No, there is no electric light. So enlargers, the way we, you know, go down the hall into our darkroom down there and find an enlarger, they didn't exist because there was no electric light. Were there enlargers that piped sunlight through some mirrors and pipes and so forth to get, Light from the outside into a dark room? Yes. But did it take a long time to make an enlargement onto this very insensitive material? Yeah, too long. Much longer than people were willing to put up with. So there and if you think about it, it sort of is like, you know, the the way we think about transportation. You know, I need to get an hour away from here to go to a meeting. Well, you know, we don't really think about well, let's see, to get an hour away from here, you know, I have to get the path I have to take, and, you know, I'm going to need to pack some food. You know. Right, if we're going to walk there, but, you know, when I say I need to get an hour away from here, all of us at our commuter campus assume we're going to get into our cars, right? So these guys weren't thinking about it in any way other than this is our method, this is how we have to do things. If I need an 11 by 14 picture, I have to make an 11 by 14 negative. <coughs> So this combination, wet plate collodion negative and albumin paper positive, was the primary negative and printmaking combination during those dates that you see there, 1851 to the 1880s. It was, for all intents and purposes, the only thing that was practiced. Other people did other things. You know, there were other daguerreotype was still popular for a while. Lots of different other processes were still popular, but. You know, not nearly as popular as this. So this was the main method that people made photographs, was this albumin printing paper and wet plate collodion. magnets. So in this same time period, that same 1851 to the 1880s or so, uh, we had a bunch of other things happening in the world. A newly mobile public. Public that wanted a pictures, wanted pictures of distant places because they were starting to recognize... As they traveled to distant places, what they saw when they got there was different from the written description that they had read before. Or, oftentimes, different from the painting that they had seen before. They'd get there, and they'd look at it, and they'd say, well, wait a minute. That's not what the painting that's hanging in the public library looks like. That isn't it, you know? So now there's a greater interest in reality, a greater interest in what it is that people were seeing. And this idea of being able to bring back pictures from distant places was made possible by wet plate collodion, which as we've discussed was a lot easier to deal with than the daguerreotype. The daguerreotype, again, could be done in the field, but once you got the picture, that was the only one you had. So images created on a wet plate printed on albumin paper were available for sale. You could go into a store, you could buy them. You could go into a store anywhere near where most people lived and, you know, any kind of metropolitan area, and go into a store and buy a picture of, you name it, just about some distant part of the world. Yes. So, when you get a negative and you um, go to print it, does that mean you would had to do several egg white-covered pieces of paper to print copies? Of so exactly. So if you had one negative, just like you know, if you could imagine being in the in the dark room today. You know, you have one negative, it's in the enlarger, and in order to make five prints, you have to take five pieces of paper, expose those five pieces of paper. So you'd need to make five individual images by printing that single negative in contact with five different... Was that negative time-sensitive, where it only lasts for so long time, or could you hold on to that negative? If we found a negative from a wet plate colonial negative from the 19th century today, it would still be printable. It's only the first part that's time-sensitive where they have to get the exactly. material in contact. So the wet plate collodion negative, once it is processed, washed, and dried, lasts ostensibly forever as long as the glass plate lasts. Nobody breaks it and nobody scratches the emulsion on it or whatever. But the paper? Paper also would last forever. You know, forever being a relative term. Didn't but know whether or not the, the picture would deteriorate. Albumin prints that we have today still are extant, still look beautiful. Most of the time, albumin was treated after the print was made, after the exposure was made, and it was fixed. Then they would oftentimes uh, tone it with gold toner, which lent a really beautiful purple cast to the picture, which people liked a lot. And it also helped preserve the silver from tarnishing, because gold wasn't going to tarnish whereas silver would. Uh, Jeff, those cards you had last, you had a bunch of cards Mm -hmm. we could look at. Were those wet plate collodion? Yep. Wet plate collodion negatives help human Exactly. All right. So all of this created a sort of armchair travel for the masses. When we think of armchair travel, we might think of, you know, sitting on a Saturday afternoon and watching, uh, you know, some PBS travel show that takes us to some place. Uh, but this was a kind of a new and novel idea, that what you could do is sit in a chair somewhere in your comfortable home and look at pictures from distant places. And one of the champions of this was a guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes. And an intriguing sort of side note is here is a daguerreotype of Oliver Wendell Holmes made by Southworth and Hawes, the people we looked at last week. So... Holmes was all of these things up here. He was a physician, a poet, an author. He was also, notably, the father of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who became a very notable Supreme Court justice here in the United States. And Holmes himself, the elder, was a tremendous advocate for photography. He thought photography was one of the most important developments of his time period. And because of that, he wrote a series of articles in a magazine called Atlantic Monthly, a magazine that is still around, still a great, wonderful magazine. And in that magazine in July of 1861, he published an article called A Photographic Trip Across the Atlantic. And I want to share a little bit about Holmes with you uh, this afternoon because his ideas about photography are so interesting. And it also helps us to kind of take that step back into the 19th century a little bit to kind of begin to understand how... Photography impacted people. Before I start with this, you have to remember that Holmes is a guy who's coming into this discussion with a certain set of preconceived notions. The first thing is he assumes that everybody who's going to read his photographic trip across the Atlantic article in the Atlantic Monthly is extremely well-educated because the populace that read the Atlantic Monthly was a well-educated well-to-do, generally, populous, And because of that, he assumes that all of us who are reading what I'm about to read you have had a sort of similar educational background. And for all of us in this room, anybody who got into a college-level class, everyone in the world who would have gotten to this particular point where they would be reading this article would have studied the classics. You would have all studied the classics. You would have known a lot about the way in which the ancient greek world worked. And not only that, you'd have read a lot of literature that was written during that time period. This would have been part of your education in the 19th century, all right? So, Holmes is talking here about a book written by a guy named Lord Bacon, spelled like it sounds, and it's a book called Wisdom of the Ancients. And this Lord Bacon guy had written this book called Wisdom of the Ancients in which he interpreted a bunch of different old fables, like the tortoise and the hare that we talked about a little while ago. So he says, Holmes says, there is one old fable in his book Wisdom of the Ancients uh, that Lord Bacon has not interpreted. This is the flaying, in your handout today, the flaying or skinning of Marseus by Apollo. Everybody remembers the accepted version of it, you know, because, of course, he's assuming that we've all read Lord Bacon's book and that we all kind of know the story of the flaying or skinning of Marseus by, a, the, by the god of by the god Apollo. He says everybody remembers the accepted version of it, namely that the young shepherd found Minerva's flute and was rash enough to enter into a musical contest with the god of music. He was beaten, of course. And the story is that the victor fastened him to a tree and flayed him skinned him, oh my god, alive. But, Holmes goes on to say, the god of song was also the god of light, and a moment's reflection reveals the true significance of this seemingly barbaric story. Apollo was pleased with his young rival, fixed him in position against an iron rest, what Holmes says is the tree of the fable, and took a photograph, a sun picture of him. This thin film, or skin, of light and shade was absurdly interpreted as being the cutest skin, or untanned leather integument, of the young shepherd. The human discovery of the art of photography enables us to rectify the error and restore that important article of clothing, the skin, to the youth, as well as to vindicate the character of Apollo. There is one less spot upon the sun since the theft from heaven of Prometheus to and his fellow adventurers have enabled us to understand the ancient legend. So his tongue's really in his cheek, right? But, and we have to kind of, again, take the step back, and if you didn't really quite get all of what that was, it's okay. He's basically just saying, you know, this bacon guy missed out because photography's here now, and what, what their story really is about is skinning someone. Skinning somebody photographically rather than literally in a skinning sort of way. He goes on and he says, We are now flaying ourselves and our friends and submitting to be flayed ourselves every few years or months or days by the same sunbeam which performed the process for Marseilles. All the world has to submit to it, kings and queens along with the rest. The monuments of art and the face of nature herself are treated in the same way. And as I uh, now sort of scroll through some of these photographs uh, that Holmes might have been looking at uh, as, uh, as I kind of give you some, of his, some more of his words, you'll kind of get an idea of what he's, uh, what he's headed for here. So uh, he says, The face of nature herself are treated in the same way. We lift an impalpable scale from the pyramids. We slip off from the dome of St. Peter's, that other imponderable dome which fitted it so closely that it betrays every scratch on the original. We skim a thin, dry cuticle from the rapids of Niagara and lay it on our unmoistened paper without breaking a bubble or losing a speck of foam. We steal a landscape from its lawful owners and defy the charge of dishonesty. So he's talking here about how photography is capable of literally taking what he calls a visual epidermis from point A and bringing it whole in parcel to point b this gentle flaying of reality that he's talking about this lifting of an infinite number of layers of visual epidermis is a kind of a metaphor that holmes is using for photography's dependence on the subject holmes sees photographs as a vehicle for transporting epidermal skins from here to there and In that, he suggests that photography has tremendous significance as a form of transportation. He goes on to say, The cream of visible creation has been skimmed off, and the sites which men risk their lives and spend uh, spend their money and endure seasickness to behold, the views of nature and art which make exiles of entire families just for the sake of a look at them. These sites gathered from the Alps, temples, palaces, pyramids, are offered to you, the readers of this article, for a trifle to carry home with you, that you may look at them at your leisure, by your fireside, with perpetual fair weather, when you're in the mood, without catching cold, without following a guide, in any order of succession that you wish. You can go from a glacier to Vesuvius, cold to hot. You can go from Niagara to Memphis. He's not talking about, like, Graceland. (laughs) Memphis, Egypt, right? So Niagara to Memphis. As long as you like, and you, he's pointing at us, you, native of this incomparably dull planet, have hardly troubled yourselves to look at this divine gift, which, if an angel had brought it, from some sphere nearer the celestial throne would have been thought worthy of the celestial messenger to whom it was entrusted. Wow. He's saying, you know, you don't get how cool this is. I can sit wherever I want and I can go to Greece. And then I, the next thing I can do is I can go from Greece to, to China. And from China I can go to rural England and from rural England I can go to Rome and I don't have to go anywhere. I can just sit here maybe with a little glass of brandy. You don't get it, he says. You don't get how incredibly wonderful this is to be able to do that. He touches on the fact that some skins are flayed more effectively than others, that some flares are possessed of a greater manipulative power over the taking of these skins than others are. So uh, he goes on to say, this is one infinite charm of the photographic delineation. And then one of my favorite sentences of all of the history of photography. Theoretically, he says, a perfect photograph is absolutely inexhaustible. Theoretically, a perfect photograph is absolutely inexhaustible. He goes on to say, in a painted picture, you can find nothing which the artist has not seen before you, but in a perfect photograph. There will be as many beauties lurking unobserved as there are flowers that blush unseen in forests and meadows. It's a mistake to suppose that one knows a photographic picture when he has studied it a hundred times by the aid of our best of our common instruments, meaning magnifying glasses, a very common way to look at photographs, especially in the 19th century, to see all of the details that you might have missed with your naked eye. And then he says, do we know all that there is in a landscape by looking out at it from our household windows? Do you really know everything that is outside that window? And he's talking about one particular picture. He says, in one of the glass plate views of Table Rock, two figures, so minute as to be objects of near comparison with the surrounding vastness, may be seen standing side by side. Look at the two faces with a strong magnifier, and you can identify their owners if you met them in a court of law. And later on he says The very things which an artist would leave out or render imperfectly, the photograph takes infinite care with, and so makes its illusions perfect. What is the picture of the drum without the marks on its head where the beating of the sticks has darkened the parchment? And three pictures of the Anne Hathaway cottage before us. The most perfect, perhaps, of all of the wet plate collodion photographs we have seen. The door at the farther end of the cottage is open and we see the marks left by the rubbing of hands and shoulders as good people came through the entry or leaned against it or felt for the latch. And it is not impossible that scales from the epidermis of the trembling hand of Anna Hathaway's young suitor, Will Shakespeare, are still inherent about the old latch and door and that they contribute to the stains that we see there. He does express some concern, though. He expresses some concern about the way in which these skins are being taken. And he gives us kind of a warning. Because he says, in our zeal to know the world photographically, it might be possible to overskin certain objects, to flay them too much. And he says, there is only one colosseum or pantheon, But how many millions of potential negatives have they shed? Representative of billions of pictures since they were erected. Matter in large masses must always be fixed and dear. But form is now cheap and transportable. The thing is fixed and dear, but form, the thing you can carry around as a picture, cheap and transportable. We have got the fruit of creation now, and need not trouble ourselves with the core. Every conceivable object of nature and art will soon scale off its surface for us. Men will hunt all of the curious, beautiful, and grand objects, much as they hunt the cattle in South America for their skins and leave the carcasses behind as of little worth. And again, his tongue might be in his cheek, but I think he is foreshadowing one of the things that we've seen in our modern society that people's photographs are sort of a stand-in for the experience of actually being in the place altogether. That the photograph, if contemplated at all, is contemplated later, maybe after the fact, and maybe the experience of standing in that place may have less value. He cautions us that we can't have to be very careful not to wear out our subject matter. So our loss of awe in the face of the natural world is what he's cautioning us about. Modern travel having brought the wilderness within our weekend grasp. But the camera, more than anything else, has been the thing that has devalued the remote and the exotic. The camera has devalued that stuff. And Holmes is sort of foreshadowing one of those great aesthetic tragedies of the 20th century. The camera devalues what we see couple of interesting pictures here. We've kind of traveled the world. Uh, here is H.H. Uh, H. H. Bennett, Bennett, a photographer who uh, had a studio in Wisconsin here photographing the Wisconsin Dells. There's a great you know, museum about Bennett. Anybody ever been there? Uh, in the Wisconsin Dells, if you're ever up in the Wisconsin Dells for any reason, this is one of those things that's you know a little bit better than the average Wisconsin Dells thing uh, to... Uh, to, to do so, been an amazing photographer in his own right. Did he make it? It looks like he's not <laughs> going to. Do. Doesn't look like he's going to make it. does That's it? His song, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Holmes gives us this sort of method of thinking about how these pictures affected people. And he recognized something that nobody really had spent a lot of time talking about. Maybe other people had recognized it, but he recognized how important the photograph was to culture and about how important it was to the way in which people considered their world. Once you could now see what other people looked like on the other side of the world, what their living conditions were like, what these objects that you'd read about in books or maybe seen in a painted image actually looked like, the world started to shrink and become smaller. It's a really interesting aspect of the way in which this guy thought about photography. And he spent most of his time writing about photography of European and Asian subjects. But I want to spend a little time uh, out in the American West. And we'll sort of start on this and kind of take a break somewhere in the middle. So it's not probably that surprising that photographs of the American West were really popular here. If we think about the time period that this was happening, late Collodium coming about in 1851, and communities like the ones around here being established more or less about that same time, maybe a little bit earlier, you know, the 1830s and 40s are when many of these towns were established. But pretty much between where we're sitting in Glen Ellen, Illinois right now and the west coast of the United States, there was nothing. It was empty. Very few people had seen it. Very few people knew what it was. And while you know, we can just drive there or fly across it, their world was a completely different world. And the idea of what was out there was big big important idea. We had not even really begun to grasp the the vastness of this space that we now had as part of our own nation. So there was tremendous westward travel, a tremendous interest in what's out there. And as that happened, the west, the west coast or the west part of the United States became a big dominant subject in American landscape photography. And part of that had to do with the fact that the East had already been skinned. White Mountains, Green Mountains, Allegheny Mountains, Niagara Falls, pretty much everything was known in the eastern part of the United States. So now there's this desire to find out what's out there. What does it look like? How can we use it? What can we do with it? Can we live in it? Can we exploit it? And one of the things that's really important to think about is how all of this ties in with manifest destiny. Manifest destiny. We've heard that phrase before. What does that mean? Manifest destiny. Big American history concept. I'll wait. Nobody can remember that from an American history class somewhere in their past, Manifest Destiny. Manifest Destiny. The idea that we were destined to be great. And it really kind of is one of those, you know, chest-thumpy American concepts that might really only have been able to happen here. That America was destined to be great, and therefore, our acquisition of this huge landmass and our ability to exploit that huge landmass factors into every aspect of our history. That it wasn't just sort of luck that all of this came to us, that it was a destiny for us. It was destined to happen, manifest destiny. So all of this ties in with a tremendous American concept of how important it was to be great. Not just to be great, but to act great. And that same sort of, you know, chest-thumping, great American concept that has really (coughs) led us from the 19th through the 20th and into the 21st century, right? For good or bad, we can all debate on those, those issues. But that idea of... Manifest Destiny, the idea that photographers who traveled out to these American western places were on what they considered to be a kind of a a holy grail kind of endeavor. Their objective was to find the great American truth out there in this vast wilderness that was between where we're sitting, pretty much, and the western coast of this large, large landmass. And, of course, the West was big, huge. And so these wet-plate collodion photographers recognized that their medium was so much more powerful at capturing all of this than was uh, the uh, small daguerreotype. So the first photographer I want to talk about is Carlton Watkins. And Watkins is so interesting for a number of different reasons. One is the fact that he really set out to be a famous American landscape photographer. That was a goal. He knew that that's what he wanted to do. And to do that, he kind of figured out a bunch of pieces of puzzle that he wanted to to establish himself with. One of them was using very, very large cameras. 16 by 20 and 20 by 24 inch cameras. Again, I I know I asked this, I'll ask it like four or five times throughout the semester, but I can never remember. How many of you have used a, Large format four x five camera. A couple others. use me and you. No, there's the co- <laughs> there's the college cabin? We have a bunch of them. Yeah, we uh, we use them primarily in the twelve o two class, the advanced black and white darkroom class. So, if you look through a large format camera, you know that looking through that big ground glass four by five inches is like the you know the first time you look through one. It's sort of like wow. That's a viewing screen unlike anything I've ever seen. Now, imagine looking through a viewing screen this big. You know, the size of a standard smallish flat panel screen now. Smallish now, today's world, right? That's the viewing screen for the camera. 20 by 24, 16 by 20, 20 by 24. He dealt with the orthochromatic problem of overexposed skies by pretty much getting rid of the sky in a lot of his pictures, and he was also, as far as anyone knows, the very first photographer to visit Yosemite. In fact, he's the one that I sort of tricked you all at the very beginning of the class with saying, you know, name an important American photographer who's best known for his work in Yosemite Valley, and you all said Carlton Watkins. No, you all said said Ansel 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 Adams, Adams. but we meant Carlton Watkins, right? So, Watkins is... uh, uh, um, really an interesting photographer because of how he deals with the the problem of photographing these vast spaces. And of course he's photographing, most of the pictures I'll show you here of his are from Yosemite Valley. Uh, But he kind of solves the problems by figuring out really interesting places to stand. And also uses the sort of foreground and background relationship in interesting ways. I'm going to read you a little quotation here, but first I want to show you the idea that if a guy climbs up this high, he's going to use two different vantage points from that same spot, right? Here is another photographer, not Watkins himself, but another photographer talking about being out in the field with the wet plate collodion process. And he's describing, this photographer is describing a day at the seaside, but you can kind of interpolate to uh, Watkins and being in Yosemite Valley. We are ready for the start. The day is a stormy one at the seaside, just the day for grand wave effects. Some shelter must be found for our darkroom tent, for it carries too much canvas to stand the force of such a gale in the open. At length, the tent is comparatively safe, so we proceed to put everything in order inside. The various bottles are in their proper places. The nitrate of silver bath is put into its light-tight well. The water tank is put outside, and a flexible tube carries its contents into the interior. Before we start, we must have a fairly liberal supply of water. This may mean a journey of a half a mile or so, so, for salt water won't do. We struggle with the ample folds of the drapery of the tent and are tucked safely inside. The bath was difficult to judge, meaning... What he means by that is it was difficult to figure out how sensitive this material was going to be. It wasn't like going to the camera store and buying a roll of film. There wasn't any ISO because you were making it yourself. It was all hand done. So you never knew how it was going to react. The stopper had not blown out of the collodion bottle during its jolting journey to the scene of the action. Remember that collodion was made by dissolving gun cotton and explosives in alcohol and ether, so it was an explosive material. So we're able to pour the contents over the plate and sometimes up our sleeves as well, and after waiting until the film of the collodion had properly set, immerse it in the nitrate bath. So far, all has gone well. The plate is carefully drained and inserted in the dark slide, and we emerge half-suffocated from the black hole of the tent. The camera is on a tripod, and we are ready. Our journey is probably down the face of a cliff where we had to seek shelter, for the tent some distance from the shore. Now we feel the force of the gale and the legs of the tripod have to be well-spread in order to keep the camera firm. Focusing is difficult, for the velvet prefers to cover the lens instead of the head. But the moment is chosen, and once more muffled up inside our tent, we proceed to develop and are perhaps presented with a fairly, have present, rewarded rather, with a fairly presentable negative. In spite of all the fatigue and frequent vexation of spirit, there were compensative joys after waiting and watching for some particular atmospheric effect. The delight on escaping from the confinement of the suffocating tent to find reward for all the patients in the shape of a successful negative is an experience known only to workers in the days of wet plate collodion. So you can see that this is again one of the things that's fascinating to me about this is that these guys came back with any pictures at all. Let alone pictures that in many cases are so amazingly beautiful, highly detailed, carefully thought through in terms of time of day, type of light, where they're standing, what they're taking a picture of, how they're describing what they're doing. Uh, So what we're seeing here is a very thoughtful process. But also remember that, you know, has anybody ever been to Yosemite? How did you get there? Did you get there from San Francisco? Yeah, drive there drove, from San Francisco. Drove. So, how long a drive is at Yosemite from San Francisco? It's okay, so maybe two to four hours, somewhere in there. Like three hour, three hour drive in a car on a super highway with divided yeah. gas stations. And so, none of that, right? You know, there might be a track, but not much of a one. So, it's horses and wagons and mules and carrying hundreds and hundreds of pounds of stuff. Not just the photographic stuff, but Obviously it's going to take more than the three hours that a modern drive might take. It's going to take a few days to get there. It's going to take a few days to get back. They have to have all of the camping equipment. They don't have any freeze-dried stuff, right? They don't have any nylon, lightweight, whatever. It's glass bottles, canvas tents, metal tent poles, you know, hammers, shovels, guns, ammunition, you know, the the whole shebang, right? So it's a big, big operation to get out there uh, and be able to uh, to get back. Uh, so let's look at Moybridge. We'll look at Edward Moybridge, and then we'll kind of uh, we'll take a break after Moybridge. So Moybridge is interesting. We'll actually see Moybridge a couple of different times this semester. We've already seen him in a couple of different ways, wearing both of the hats that are that he's well known for. You will recall that Moybridge is the photographer who had the stop-motion horse, the horse where he was able to capture the horse at full gallop and all four of its hooves off the ground at one time. And we'll come back to that body of work that Moybridge did at a later time. But what's interesting is that Moybridge and Watkins were both based out of San Francisco, and they were competitors. They were rivals. They knew of one another. Uh, They knew the work that the other guy had been doing. And they tried really hard to figure out a way to, uh, to outdo each other. Moybridge is really different in some ways because he certainly preferred a much more dramatic, some would call it theatrical, strategy for his photographs, uh, oftentimes using contrasty light, also using mammoth plates 16 by 20, 20 by 24 but he was also a technically inventive. Remember, he's the guy who figured out how to stop a horse in motion. So, uh, he's a technically inventive kind of guy. So, as we begin to look at his pictures, <coughs> oh God, excuse me. I'm gonna turn off the side lights here so you can see these a little bit better. Because <coughs> a lot of his stuff is buried a little bit in, in some of the dark details. One of the things you'll notice, and let's just go back to this one really quickly, is that a a couple of things are really different for Moybridge. One is that he often uses super dark shadow areas that often take up huge amounts of the picture. But he was technically good enough to be able to give us at least some detail in here while still holding detail here. The other thing that's interesting is that you'll often see cloudy skies in Moybridge's pictures. We'll kind of go through these and, and we'll get to the point where we'll talk about them. It's also interesting to note that all these photographers, not just Moybridge, were also using, in addition to these big mammoth plate pictures, they were also using stereoscopic pictures. We'll talk about stereo in some more detail a little later on, but they were covering the waterfront in terms of their product that they were bringing back to the marketplace. They weren't just making the expensive, large pictures. They were also making small pictures that could more easily be sold to anybody rather than just the expensive ones that only wealthy people could afford. So they were making stereoscopic pictures too. But one of the things you see as we look at Moivridge's pictures is that they're very dramatic. We're often feeling like we're standing at the edge of something, (coughs) using foreground elements very effectively, using light really effectively, oftentimes using the subject in reflection to get a better sense of what the subject looked like. But do you notice that Some of these skies are not as blank as Watkins' skies are. So here's how he did it. And this is the only way I can figure out how to describe what this thing looks like. This gizmo that I've just put up on screen is something that a carpenter would use. A carpenter would use this thing called a profile gauge. And they'd press it against the crown molding or the chair rail or whatever they're trying to reproduce. And it would have all these little metal fingers, and those little metal fingers would give them the outline of this, which they could then trace on a piece of paper and then use cutting tools like routers and whatever to make that, make that design, right? So Moybridge thought of the idea that the problem wasn't so much that the plate was overly sensitive to blue light. In his mind, the problem was really that the sky was getting too much exposure. So he figured out that if he took something like this a little set of sticks that slid next to one another, and he put them inside of his camera and connected that with a little string that kind of went through a baffle before it got to the outside of the camera. If he took the lens cap off the camera and he had a 10-second exposure, let's say, after the first ten or, you know, after the first five or seven seconds, he'd pull out the string and this little thing would flop down and the exposure of the sky would happen. In other words, it's in camera dodging. If any of you have been in the dark room and you're holding back light from the piece of paper by using the dodging tool, you know we have a dodging tool in Photoshop, but it's kind of disconnected from the experience of using a dodging tool in the dark room. He's just using a strategy to essentially block light from inside the camera from falling on the sky. And what he gets is skies, oftentimes, not in this particular case, but oftentimes he gets these skies that are much more filled with clouds than any other photographer had done. A very inventive guy. Look at this picture. Like, I'm just about ready to fall into the chasm, right? And because he could sculpt this little gizmo in the back of the camera to give it the right outline for the sky, he got pictures that were much more naturalistic looking than many of the other photographers had uh, had been making. So he got cloudy skies where others could not just by figuring out a piece of technology that allowed the sky to get less exposure inside the camera than the rest of the scene did. I've been to the top of that thing. Say again? I've been to the top of that thing. Been to oh, the, top the top of that top thing? thing? Nice. nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Helicoptered in? No. You climb it. No, there's cables you the Nice. Mm-hmm. Cables. Attached to the rock. Mm-hmm. Well attached to the rock. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> well, apparently well <laughs> enough that you got back down. It's a thing. Right? People do it like, Oh, yeah, lots of people do it. All right. I have a question. Sure. Did these guys uh, uh, do the prints in the field? No. The prints were almost always done later. So how do they know that their process, which was by hand, how do they know, given all these conditions, it's going to turn out? How do they know to make adjustments? Remember that what they get at the end of the making of the negative part is a negative that they can take out into the daylight and hold it up against the sky and look at it. So, you know, and it's, it's one of those things that's really, It's really, really interesting. And again, just let me ask, because I always like to know the answer to this question. How many of you have worked in a dark room and made darkroom-based prints? So, yesterday counts? Yeah, <laughs> yesterday counts. So what's, what's interesting is that the people who just raised their hand get that. Like, oh, well, here's the negative, and it has the amount of detail that I need, so I can make a print from that. And as we go farther into the digital era, where fewer people have used those traditional tools, it's harder and harder to kind of grasp what the, what the translation is. And it's, quite frankly, you know, and those of you who did raise your hand, who have been in the traditional darkroom, how much does it help you understand photography? A A lot. A lot. Like, more than you thought it was going to before we forced you to go to the room, right? You know, a lot. Like, you suddenly, all of a sudden, kind of understand how light affects material. And it's sort of like, oh, why didn't they tell me that before? And then we'd say, well, we tried, but we didn't want it. I don't want to take any darkroom. So Were they able to, to push the different uh, finished prints by more, more or less light on these negatives. Uh, I think I understand the question. So, in other words, could they, could they manipulate the process okay, right. to change contrast response yes. and so forth? Yes, yes. Not the printing mm-hmm. part of the process, but the, the photographic part of the process. And of course, you know, and I think this is one of the one of those pieces that. We actually talk about a little bit later on, but but I'll, I'll I'll broach the topic here. Remember that these are guys who are making every part of their photographic world up on the spot. So they've got you know a batch of chemicals. They're mixing stuff together. They're figuring out which pieces to add and which pieces to subtract a little bit of, and then they're making the exposure. And then they're coming back you know from the dark room, and They're saying, oh look, a negative. And they say, you know. I could probably do a better job. So then they go get a piece, another piece of glass. At some point, they might run out of glass, right? They might say, well, I can't make another picture because I don't have any more glass plates left. Well, what could they do? They could take and scrape the emulsion off the piece of glass with a razor blade and start over again. So they could go through their their tank much like we do on the LCD panel of our digital cameras, when our camera capture card has run out of space, then they could go through and they could say, well, yeah, this one's not so good. I can delete that one and make a new emulsion and make this picture better. And as we'll also see uh, a little bit later on in the semester, you will also see photographers playing with, essentially what we might think of as bracketing by figuring out, Various ways, even though all of them are correct exposures, figuring out various ways to make the picture in in the same picture but in different lighting conditions. So we'll sort of see that too. Because it's not like they all know what they're doing, right? You know, they're just making it up the way anybody else is making it up. They're just making it up based on experience, right? You know, their experience, they know what the materials do to a certain extent. But as the guy whose quote I just read said, so, you know, the bath was was unpredictable. You didn't know what it was going to do because as it aged, it changed. The older it got, the more it changed. So, how, how long did you have to leave the negative and the albumin paper in contact? It depended on everything, really. Where were you in the world? How intense was the sun? It would take longer to make a print from an albumen, on an albumen negative. From a wet plate collodion negative, it would take longer to do it in February in Chicago than it would in, you know, August in Georgia. So how how, how did they know? Was somebody just watching it the whole time? Just watch it the whole time, and it is uh, these, this albumen printing paper was what we would call a printing out paper. So, those of you who've been in the dark room, you expose the piece of paper under the enlarger, and then when you take it out from the easel and underneath the enlarger, what does it look like? A white piece of paper, right? And then what happens? The the you put it in the developer and magic, magic happens, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the image develops out. So the developer takes the light signal that's in the paper and causes the chemical reaction to occur inside the paper. This material was printing out paper. The longer it was exposed, the darker it got. So what they'd literally do uh, is they'd have essentially what looked like rail cars uh, with a rack on them. And they'd have racks and racks and racks of these negatives in frames in contact with the piece of paper. They'd put them out on a rack inside of a building push this car outside of the building on a track, light would fall on the images, and then have, they'd have kids who'd run up and down this rack and grab the frames off and take samples down, and people would take them into the dark and peek at them to see if the exposure was right. Once it was right, then they'd fix it, wash it, and dry it. So, and they would do that in a in a large number of images, hundreds at a time. Uh, you know, that same question that Deb asked, you know, how. Do you take one negative and make multiple prints? You can only make one at a time, right? Because you only got that one negative. So. Timothy O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan got his first photographic training uh, using, uh, but from from uh, Matthew Brady during the Civil War. He was an inexperienced guy that Brady hired to go out and make Civil War pictures, and. One of the things that's interesting about O'Sullivan's photographs, and it's interesting to sort of contrast them with the photographs that we've been looking at that are really intended to be kind of beautiful images. O'Sullivan's pictures are often not necessarily beautiful. And that's because O'Sullivan was not working in the same way that uh, Watkins and Moybridge were working. He was working oftentimes for survey expeditions. So his job was to accompany people who were making maps and surveying the landscape, trying to figure out where they could put railway bridges and and how they could get right of way through these landscapes uh, to be able to to expand travel westward. So when we look at some of these pictures, they don't have the same kind of picturesque quality because they aren't intended to be that kind of photograph. Uh, This one's really interesting because this is his... uh, his boat, O'Sullivan's boat, called Picture. Here's his darkroom tent, and here he is at the, you know, the abandoned the river. You can see the the water flowing by because of the long shutter speed, the long exposure time. So a lot of times when we look at these pictures, they're sort of like, well, so. But remember that what they're doing is recording the progress of the survey expedition. Survey Expedition records, we found all of these places where through fissures in the rocks, steam is escaping. O'Sullivan makes photographs of them. When we look at a photograph like this, at first it seems like, well, it's kind of interesting as a formalist exercise. Certainly O'Sullivan, I think, is responding to the overexposed sky and kind of making a cool photograph out of that big negative space. But at the same time, he's also making a photograph that describes, well, these landscapes have huge changes in elevation. At least there are places where we might be able to put a trestle through that spot and build the railway through here. And so what we get are lots of pictures that are descriptive. So we've got you know, a picture like this that has uh, an inscription that's been carved in a rock with a ruler that tells us how big it is so that we have some record of it. Uh, so that in many ways these are much more about sort of studying what they find out there rather than trying to give us the, the picturesque beauty of the landscape. What is it we find? We find, you know, tools, we find skulls. This one's one of my favorites, the mouth of a geyser. And I think about, you know, when I think about this picture, I think about how many eruptions of the geyser they would wait through to make sure that they had enough time to get the camera in there, you know, a plate coated, the camera in there. The, the guy who's using, being used as a sense of scale, how big is the mouth of the geyser? In order to then get themselves away from it before the thing erupts again. Now, would that be the photographer above the geyser and the assistant taking the picture? Uh, probably the assistant. I'd leave the I'd, I'd do the assistant there. I'm still standing up as the photographer. I can grab the camera and run. Right? The assistant's falling <laughs> down. That's why. Yeah, that's that's how I would use my assistant if that, that case. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Stick your hand up. So, you know, here's another O'Sullivan picture. Again, it looks like it's not very interesting photographically until you begin to think, okay, so he's taking a picture of these rocks that have been etched by the blowing sand. So he's telling us about the landscape, about the environment. He's got a couple of common objects in here, a little handheld mirror and a bottle to give us a sense of the scale, so we know how big these things are. So he's telling us about what it is that they're finding. And so in many ways, these are pictures that are not intended to be quite so uh, specifically about the beauty of the, of the natural world, but rather much more about what it is that they discover. And yet, every once in a while, he'll make a picture that's really quite beautiful. And of course, a photograph that we know from more contemporary photographers. Uh, and sort of one of those things that, oftentimes gives us a sense that photography is bigger than what we had thought it was when we, uh, when we started looking at the history of the medium. And I always like to point this picture out because, well, again, he's a guy who's not making pictures that are specifically intended to be picturesque. Most of the time, because he's a pretty good photographer, he can't help himself. And I often look at how important his left to right positioning is here, And how important it is where this rock falls against the reflection. And how if he had moved five or six steps to the right, the picture would have flattened out substantially. We wouldn't see that much depth because the reflection of the water and the rock wouldn't cross over as much. It's really interesting because, you know, he might not have thought of that on a conscious level. But oftentimes I think photographers think of these things subconsciously in some way. Another photographer that I wanted to just give a little nodding glance to is this guy, A.J. Russell. Russell's probably less well-known than a lot of the photographers of the American Western landscape, but I really find Russell to be tremendously interesting for uh, one major thing, and that is his use of the figure in the landscape. And, you know, we just saw a picture of the guy, like, next to the geyser. And earlier today we saw a few pictures from you know faraway places like Egypt or wherever where there's you know a guy standing next to the the Sphinx's head or the Colossus's head. But here with A.J. Russell, these pictures are in my mind a lot less about scale. I mean they're really something else entirely, I think. And it's at some point they're they're fun too, because they become a kind of a where's Waldo? You know, you know, there's the guy, right? So I suppose you could suggest that the, that the pictures are at least in part describing scale. But I also think they're describing conquest. They're describing something that goes beyond how big is this guy in this landscape. And if you've ever read any literature written by any of the people who traveled out into these remote areas before they were settled. A lot of these people, kind of there's a refrain almost amongst them. And they kind of talk a lot about how brave we are, how we must look out here, we brave people, in the middle of nowhere, making our way in the world. So a lot of times, I see these people, and they're not really kind of, you know, if if this guy was really meant for a sense of scale, you, know, you put him way over here or something. Or, you know, you get him to stand over there. You know, whatever. But I think it's as much about man in nature. Man in nature. And the way in which these guys kind of confronted the natural world. And the fact that it was a very quiet place. It's interesting, too. When you look at these pictures, these pictures are a little less quiet than the other ones we've looked at. The other ones, there's no indication of man's presence. But here there's a guy standing there somewhere and talking about the way he exists in the world in a, in a kind of a different way than, certainly than the sense of scale. And I love this guy with his arm up, you know, sort of waving. Remember that there is something about the natural world and its connection to the other, to the spiritual world, that factors into this. That for many people, in especially this country, the natural world, especially this untouched virgin natural world, it was our cathedral. It was our spiritual center. We didn't have a chart or a Notre Dame. Or a Saint Peter's, or a Saint Paul's. What we had was this: this natural world that has its own sort of spiritual reality in some way. Everybody always sees this guy up here, but a lot of people miss these guys, so I like to point them out down here under the rock. William Henry Jackson, another one of these Western landscape photographers. Uh, his pictures are often very romantic, meaning that they have a kind of uh, inner, uh, inner quality to them that sort of suggests the, the romantic beauty of the natural world. But also the mystical nature of nature. There's you know something about these pictures that might be a little, a little more uh, sensitive in some ways. Uh, also, his use of the blank sky as a planar shape. Because, you know, how do you solve the problem? If you're Moybridge, you solve it with the sky shade. If you're Jackson, you solve it in a different way. (coughs) So here's William Henry Jackson, one of my very favorite pictures. I mean, it's like one of those pictures that, you know, none of us at some point in our lives as a photographer haven't found light raking across grass or some other textured object late in the day or early in the morning. A beautiful thing to photograph. So you know, here he is photographing that beautiful thing, including himself in the picture in this shadow. Do you know where that is? Just I don't. Okay. I don't know where that is. But I guess, you know, Wyoming, maybe Montana. I wondered if it was Montana. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that is that is worth sort of pointing out here. And again, for most of you who haven't used the view camera, this is kind of a revelatory bit. So your single-lens reflex camera takes the light coming through the lens, bounces it off of a mirror, bounces it off a couple more mirrors, and reflects it into your eye. And as it does that, it rectifies the upside-down image, right? We know that every lens turns the thing upside-down, but if you're using one of these cameras that has a lens and a viewing screen and no mirrors inside to turn the image upside down, when you look at the picture, you're looking at the scene upside down. When you view through the viewing screen, you're viewing the image upside down. You're viewing the world upside down in a large format camera. No matter how you use it, the picture is always upside down and it's always laterally reversed, left to right. So one of the things that's really interesting to think about whenever you look at any of these 19th century photographs is that the photographer was always looking at the picture upside down and reversed left to right. So because of that, we often find that they're making compositions that have a kind of interesting abstract quality to them. This one's a pretty great example because it kind of works just as well as a photograph upside down as it does right side up photographically, compositionally, it works the same way. So it's really interesting as you see these pictures to think about the fact that the photographer is always looking at them upside down and reverse left to right when they're looking through the camera. Eventually, for those of you who have used the large format camera, you kind of get to a point where you don't think about it that way. You don't really, it, it isn't upside down. I mean, it is, but you do the mental gymnastics to sort of flip it right side up anyway uh, in your in your head. So. Another one that you know that another photographer often accompanied survey expeditions. So oftentimes the pictures are of a thing not particularly photographically fascinating, but really interesting to those people who are armchair travelers or are using these pictures to further illuminate what it is that they're uh, they're talking about. And then there's this photograph by William Henry Jackson which points up the thing I was just talking about a minute ago. This is Jackson's best-known photograph, his most popular photograph in terms of its sales, uh, called the Mountain of the Holy Cross. Uh, you'll still find people who go to this spot, stand in this spot, make this photograph in the springtime. And, for, and it, this is one of those places where it, it really depends on where you fall on the sort of spiritual scale Uh, And I try to sort of present it in a neutral way. But for the 19th century American, this picture was clear and pure evidence of God's existence. The fact that the snow in the spring revealed a cruciform shape in the side of the mountain was untarnished evidence of God's existence in the world and God's existence in the natural spiritual world. And so that relationship between nature, man, and God kind of all comes together in this in this particular picture. Uh, and uh, again, that idea of the American landscape being our cathedral, our cathedral, our place where we understood in a different way uh, that connection to the other. So another uh, uh, piece of data, we, you know, we sort of glossed over this, we'll come back to it a couple of times. The idea that in order to reproduce these pictures any way other than photographically, they had to be printed in ink. So if you wanted to put them in a magazine, you had to print them in ink. And there wasn't any way to do it using halftone reproduction because it hadn't been invented yet. So to reproduce in the Illustrated Christian Weekly any of William Henry Jackson's pictures, they had to hire an artist would draw the pictures and then they could be printed in a newspaper or a magazine like the Illustrated Christian Weekly. So the dilemma was that you could distribute these pictures but if you wanted to distribute hundreds of thousands of them you had to sort of take 25 steps backward, after taking the 30 steps forward. So uh, drawing the pictures from the photographs. So William Henry Jackson wrote his autobiography in 1940 he called it time exposure I love that right time exposure and uh, I thought I'd just share with you a a little nugget from it as we look at some of his pictures here he said late the next afternoon we had our first close view of the enchanted land when our party came upon the mammoth hot springs we were so far as records show the first white men ever to see those bubbling cauldrons of nature and I found myself excited by the knowledge that the next day I was to photograph them for the very first time. I was particularly fortunate that first day. The subject matter, close at hand, was so rich and so abundant that it was necessary to move my dark box only three or four times. My invariable practice was to keep it in the shade, then after carefully focusing my camera, return to the box, sensitize a plate, hurry back to the camera while it was still moist, slip the plate into position, and make the exposure. The next step was to return to the dark box and immediately develop the plate. Then I would go through the entire process once more from a new position. Under average conditions, a round trip might use up three quarters of an hour. At Mammoth Springs, however, there was so little shifting to do that I was able to cut the time into less than 15 minutes. Another thing that helped was the hot water in our fingertips. By washing the plates in water that came out of the springs at 160 degrees Fahrenheit, we were able to cut the drying time more than in half. But soon the inevitable compensation occurred. After going up the Yellowstone as far as Baronet's Bridge, we proceeded to Tower Creek. At the point where the stream drops into the gorge, the view is magnificent, but recording it on a glass plate the bed beneath turned out to be my biggest photographic problem of the year. Clambering down and even up the steep sides of the canyon was not an insuperable task. Neither was moving the camera over the same route. But getting the heavy dark box within working distance was a stickler. In fact. In the absence of some sort of a mechanical aid, it couldn't be done. Since the mountain could not be brought to Mohammed, another method had to be worked out, and I finally solved the situation. After setting up and focusing my camera at the bottom of the gorge, I would prepare a plate, back the holder with wet blotting paper, then slip-slide and tumble my way down to the camera and make the exposure. After taking my picture, I had to climb to the top, carrying the exposed plate wrapped up in a moist towel. With my assistant Dixon to help cleaning and washing the plates, I succeeded in repeating the procedure four or five times. The end of the day found us exhausted, but very proud, and we had reason to be pleased with ourselves, for not a single one of our negatives had dried out uh, before being developed. Pictorially, the climax of the expedition came with our week's stay at the falls and Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. There were four of us making pictures. The two painters, Elliot and Moran, one of those is Thomas Moran, a very well-known American painter, they bring painters along on these survey expeditions to do stuff that the photographers couldn't do. Uh, the other photographer was Jay Christman. I've got a couple of examples here of hand-colored photographs by William Henry Jackson, adding back the color that wasn't there in the monochrome rendition. Jay Christman, then of Bozeman, Montana, who I met in Utah two summers earlier. Christman had been taken along as a guest, and since he was a good companion in every sense, he made himself fully welcome. A little later, I was able to return the courtesies he had shown me in Corinth when he let me use his darkroom. When his own camera was blown over into a canyon and destroyed, I turned over my old 65 by 85 camera to him for the rest of the trip. Within the next few months, and here is William Henry Jackson with his 20 by 24 camera, I was to begin to taste that little fame which comes to every man who succeeds in doing a thing before someone else does. Besides myself, there had been two other photographers in the Yellowstone that season. One of them was Chrisman, whose pictures never passed the confines of a purely local market. The second man was the expert T.J. Hine out of Chicago, who had been attached to the Barlow Heat Party. Hine got back to Chicago just in time to have every single negative destroyed in the terrible fire of 1871. And so the fact that my pictures were the only ones to be published that year is something for which I have to thank Mrs. O'Leary's cow. <laughs> You're gonna love that, right? So, <clears throat> and again, stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, here's this guy getting his pictures published because the only other guy to make any decent pictures in that area, uh, you know, had his negatives destroyed. So when we look at these pictures of the 19th century and look at the ideas that these guys were dealing with, not only the big ideas about photography, but the sort of day-to-day realities of what they were doing, we can see really how remarkable they were. Not only brave men out there in the wilderness doing these sort of amazing things, but bringing back these photographs that were made with a great deal of sensitivity. And what I wanted to sort of wind up with is uh, a little bit about the road. Because one of the things that I recognized as I sort of looked at the idea of Photography as a form of transportation, as, as Holmes suggested that it was early on uh, this afternoon. Photography has always been invested in the road. It's always been interested in the road. It's always been a big draw. You know, so here is a, a photograph by the great FSA photographer Dorothea Lange. And when we think about the era that these pictures were made in, I mean, here's John Steinbeck saying: a journey is a person in itself. No two are alike, and all plans, safeguards, policing, and coercion are fruitless. We find that after years of struggle, we do not take a trip. A trip takes us. <coughs> take a trip. A trip takes us. Jacques Henri Lartigue, a photographer we'll explore in a little bit more detail later on a young man who made almost all of his important photographs before he was age 17, most of them between the ages of 12 and 16. Lartigue photographed like a child, with a sort of childlike innocence to the pictures. And, like any child, fascinated by a swiftly moving car, made this photograph uh, that you know, kind of betrays his childlike interest in fast cars. This is a really interesting photograph, though, because it kind of points out something interesting about how photography works, because it's a weird picture. There's some stuff going on here that kind of helps us see some of the technology underlying photography. So describe for me what's happening here. Automobile race. Automobile race. Spectators along the side of the road. What do the spectators look like? Betting. They're betting on it. Oh. We had like this. He's moving the camera. Kind of weird like... So what else do we notice about the car? The wheel is not the wheel is a round. The wheel is not round, which, you know, might produce a kind of a lumpy ride, right? Boinka, boinka, boinka as it goes up and down, right? But the wheel obviously is round. Why is the wheel not round in this photograph? And why are the spectators sort of seemingly blown back a little bit? Movement of the camera to capture the uh, car. Movement of the camera to capture the car. Are they going down a hill? Are they going down a hill? Is it the lens? Would that make the wheel out of round? Is it the lens? Deb's convinced it's the lens. Because you've seen this picture before, that's why. You've seen this one before with me describing this, so you're trying to pull that back. Joan has two, trying to pull this back. Alright, so how does a focal plane shutter work? Magic. It's magic. Just like the darkroom. Thank you, Andrew. How does a focal plane shutter work? Two curtains, right? Two curtains, one curtain that goes this way, another curtain that follows it. For long shutter speeds, one second, one curtain opens, the other curtain follows it. For faster shutter speeds, as the shutter gets faster, before the one curtain finishes its movement, the other curtain starts to move. For very fast shutter speeds, one 500th of a second, one 250th of a second, What might happen is that the first curtain starts to move and the other one starts to move at the same time. And what you get is a slit that runs along the focal plane. So what's happening here is that Lartigue is taking a picture of the car as it goes by, and he has a focal plane shutter camera where what's happened is (coughs) part of the wheel has been exposed by this slit traveling up or down. Part of the wheel has been exposed at one second fraction of a second different time than the other part of the wheel. And as the camera's moving, the people's bottom parts are recorded at a slightly different time than the people's top parts are recorded. It's a weird picture that once you sort of start to think about how could that have happened, you kind of begin to think through the process of how photography works. How is it possible to expose this part of the wheel before this part of the wheel? Because it's obvious that this part got exposed first and this part last, right? Because this part is farther ahead. I'm sorry, the other way around. So it's going the other way. So this part farther ahead than the other part. Then why are the, the, why are the people angled this way and that angled? Because the camera because the is moving, is moving way. this way, okay. the right? Is, right? The camera is moving. The camera's moving. Okay. He's trying to, you know, my guess is he was trying to capture the car in its entirety. But he missed, right? He got the back end of the car instead of the front end of the car. He's panning. But probably, had he's panning, making a a better picture that way. Yeah, but he got it right because the driver is almost in in perfect focus. In perfect focus, right. So he got the pan motion. If any of you tried to do panning, it's harder than it looks, right? Mm -hmm. So a great photograph by one of the great FSA photographers, Walker Evans, part of the Farm Security Administration. And, you know, this is one of the things that I love about this little section of of these few pictures, just a few that I want to show you, is that they really kind of detail the growing phenomenon of America's fascination with the automobile and how, as the automobile grew in popularity and our interest in it grew, that people's interest in how the car worked, what they needed to have, All of that kind of stuff begins to grow as well. It also points out, if you've looked at Walker Evans at all, and and you probably should because he's one of the great American photographers, he tended to stand stock still straight in front of something. His his M.O. was, if it's going to reveal its secrets, it's going to reveal it by me standing directly in front of it and taking its picture that way. Another FSA photographer, Marion Post-Wolcott, talking about, the sort of rural aspect of our culture. A pair of contemporary photographers, Gary Winogrand and Jim Allender, exploring the car culture of the 1950s and 1960s, but also looking at how the car culture begins to change our landscape, our environment. What's that landscape like as soon as we start to need garages to put our cars in? The great news photographer, Ouija, so named because his real name, Arthur Fellig, didn't really kind of convey the Ouija board like sense that he was able to bring to being at the scene of the crime just at the moment that the crime happened or a little bit afterwards, before the cops were even able to get there, oftentimes. Is that a steering wheel in his hand? Maybe he was. Looks like. (laughs) Left holding the steering wheel. Tennessee Williams, a great playwright, wrote, What is straight? A line can be straight, or a street? But the human heart, oh no, gets curved like a road through the mountains. We'll look at uh, Robert Frank's project, The Americans, on a number of different occasions, a few different levels that we'll look at it. His project, Swiss photographer Robert Frank, his project, The Americans, was a pivotal point in the history of photography. Produced during the 1950s, post-war America, Frank talked about how important the car was to American culture in the 1950s. And his project kind of moves between cars and the way people spend their leisure time and the way people work. But over and over again, in in Robert Frank's world of America in the 1950s, we see the car becoming an important part of how we perceived ourselves. The guy who wrote the foreword to Robert Frank's book, The Americans, was Jack Kerouac. Kerouac, an author you're probably at least marginally familiar with. We'll talk more about Kerouac later. From Kerouac's book, On the Road, What is that feeling when you're driving away from people and they recede on the plane until you see their specks dispersing? It's the too huge world vaulting us, and it's goodbye. But we lean forward to the next crazy venture beneath the skies. Danny Lyon was so fascinated by the road and the way motorcycle gangs used the road that in order to photograph the motorcycle gangs, he became a motorcycle gang member. One of the first photographers to recognize that in order to photograph a, a sort of cultural subculture, that he needed to become a part of it. Lee Friedlander, whose huge, enormous body of work has often used the car as a metaphor for our sort of shell and how we view America what we see America as. How America's landscape is really defined by our view out the window. Great American photographer, tremendous friend of the COD photo program, David Plowden. Very important American photographer who has taken to the road for almost In the last 50 years or so, most all of his work has been made from going out on the road and finding cultures and parts of our American culture that he begins to understand are disappearing from around us, photographing roadways, railways, railway stations. Not his most recent book, but a recent book was this Requiem for Steam, about the disappearance of the steam engines. Then a couple of photographers whose bodies of work have dealt with the sort of wreckage of the American road. Edward Bertinsky showing us mile upon mile of discarded automobile tires. Chris Jordan showing us what happens to our cars after we're done with them. And of course the photographer that everyone identifies with these magical, wonderful pictures of the natural world, Ansel Adams has photographed the road itself. Photographer you wouldn't really think of as making this kind of photograph. I know you've got to go to the dentist. Andrew, so. I, don't want to. I just don't want to be rude. No, go ahead. Been, you told me beforehand, so that's fine. I, I don't want, and I don't want you to be late for the next because, you know, I know what, that, I know what happens then. Because I've been late for the And then the last thing I want to uh, ask you about is ask you to consider this about technology and how technology is changing some of the ideas that Oliver Wendell Holmes talked about at the very beginning of our class this afternoon about what we do with that technology. So here is Google Earth. And with Google Earth, what's possible for us is to look and us, here we are. Actually, this is a slightly older Google Earth because it doesn't show one of our newer buildings. But with Google Earth, one of the more amazing aspects of it is that it can take us and fly us out across the globe. We can decide that we want to go to see St. Peter's in Rome. We can... Travel there in a matter of two or three seconds without having to worry about anything. Kind of taking Oliver Wendell Holmes' idea of armchair travel to an extreme. And not only that, but we can go down from that trip that we fly in. We can learn about what St. Peter's is, when it was made, who its architects were. And more importantly, we can even see what it's like to be standing on the ground right there. We can enter the scene, as it were, and see if a man stopped to have his photograph made. We can pan around, see what the space looks like, and then we can just as easily, as we flew in, fly our way back and go anywhere else in the world with remarkable accuracy. Astonishing accuracy. Down to the door numbers on the building where we're going to spend our summer vacation. Amazing but true. So how does that impact how photography changes our culture? Here's another one, gigapan. An inexpensive point-and-shoot camera is attached to a rig. The rig allows... Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photographs to be made in a fraction of a few seconds. Those photographs can then be stitched together so that in the crowd at Barack Obama's inauguration, we can zoom in and see the former president, his advisors, his wife, Aretha Franklin in a fabulous hat here. (laughs) And we can scroll around the crowd. We can identify... Hundreds and hundreds of people known to us or unknown to us by virtue of the fact that the camera is now capable of gigabytes worth of data, not just megabytes worth of data. And then there's this: Photosynth. This is a Microsoft-developed application that goes out into the internet. Finds pictures that have the keywords of the places that you might be interested in looking at. And on the fly creates synthetic views of what it is that you want to look at. So here we are at Notre Dame. And each of these pictures is being sort of brought into the scene on the fly. from Gathered from millions and millions and millions of pictures that are keyworded or identified as being Notre Dame. And one of the things you may have noticed is that it wasn't all just photographs. There were drawings, architectural renderings, wide variety of kinds of things. How does that impact how we perceive photography and how photography might think about uh, how we might think about photography as a as a travel device? And then very lastly, photographs by uh, Nate Larson and Marty Schindelman, a duo. Uh, that work together on collaborative projects. And uh, what they do is, as they say, they say, we use publicly available GPS metadata in Twitter posts to track and photograph the locations that the Twitter posts came from. So they call through Twitter looking looking for interesting stuff. And any of the Twitter posts that have metadata embedded in them that they find interesting enough, they'll go to that location and photograph that location and combine it with the tweet that went out in the Twitter post. Well, I just got laid off. Despite the raise, I had a sneaking suspicion there was no money. And yep, I was right. I knew something was off. (coughs) Excuse me. Love hiding in the back at work because I have a 35-year-old creeper Hashtag scared. Hashtag help. Ready for my birthday, then the beach. Hashtag just saying. Hashtag happy. Amy is dying at Highland Hospital. Conflating these two things of location and photograph. Changing our perception of what these mundane-looking places might be. Amy is dying at Highland Hospital. Tell me I'm not making a mistake. Tell me you're worth the wait. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> it's a hot car, you know. <laughs> Looks like a Plymouth. So yeah, a much more personalized view of the way in which the world is when seen through photographs. Personalized, but sort of not personalized, too. I mean, we know that someone would have made those tweets, but we're not really sure you know, who it is. Pretty interesting images. So GPS, being able to travel to anywhere that we want within seconds, being able to scout locations, anybody use Google Earth for that? Scout locations, find what it's going to look like, figure out where where north is so you can know where the sun's going to be. It's amazing, right? So how does that change the way we think about landscape photography and what landscape photography might be? Photography is a form of transport, the way that photographs can move us from point A to point B.